0: The scripture passage for this morning's sermon is from Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin.
1: Let's pray. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from your hands because Lord, you laid down the once for all single sacrifice and by that sacrifice, you have done it all. And you yourself sat upon the cross, it is finished and then you sat down. And so we rest in you, Jesus. We rest in your work. We trust that you're here with us. We trust that you're gonna work in us by your word now. We don't look to a man. We don't look to a service. We die to this place that we're in. We fix our eyes on Christ. We ask ask you now to come and feed us, to come and reveal yourself to us, to come and teach us. We're your children and we're hungry, we need you, and you have everything we need, so come now, I pray. Lead us in the way that we should go, in Jesus' name, amen. From before the foundation of the world, God knew that disobedience would enter the world through the rebellion of Adam and of Eve and of every other human being that's lived from their day all the way down to our time. This was not a surprise to God. He knew it. And by the grace and mercy that's in his heart, God made a way through Jesus Christ with a passion to display for all of heaven and earth the fullness of his glory. He made a way to trump the disobedience of Adam through the obedience of Jesus and the Father purposed to do this not just by the fact of the sheer obedience of Christ, but by the Spirit with which the Son obeyed the Father, with the Spirit with which Jesus obeyed God. Jesus obeyed the Father out of deep love for the Father. Jesus obeyed the Father because it was His joy to do the will of the Father. He wanted to do what the Father had called Him to do. Jesus obeyed the Father out of deep respect for the Father and the sure knowledge that the ways of God are the best ways, the highest ways. Even when those ways are hard, even when those ways are counterintuitive, the Son was completely given over to the Father because He trusted the Father. Understand, beloved, the obedience of Jesus isn't just about what He did, but it's about the Spirit with which He did it. And the sacrifice that made forgiveness possible for us was not just about the particulars of what Christ did in his life. It was about his heart. It was about the way he obeyed the Father. He walked in love with his Father and that sacrifice was very, very pleasing to God. That's what trumped the power of the disobedience of Adam. That spirit is what reversed the curse that was upon the world because of sin. Indeed, as I said last week, and I put it up on the PowerPoint for you again, it was the glad, submissive heart of Christ that made the awesome sacrifice. Please hear it. Please hear the word of the Lord. It was the happy, obedient heart of Christ that made that awesome sacrifice. And because he made it, you and I are free. And you and I can be holy. The spirit of Jesus, as much as the details of his life, are what set us free. Look at Hebrews 10, chapter, or chapter 10, verse 10. And by that will, the will that God had for the Son, the will that the Son submitted to, by that will we have been sanctified or made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And this brings us to the text for today, chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. And here the author wraps up his priestly section of this letter. From chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 18, there, there's this section in the New Testament. It's really the only section in the whole Bible that really takes the time to, to passionately and powerfully exalt Jesus as our great high priest, And now with these verses, he's wrapping this section up. He's drawing it to an end. And he does this by bringing our attention back to Psalm 110. And if you've been with us through this journey in in Hebrews, then you'll remember Psalm 110 is a very important psalm, a, a very important psalm. There are people who spend their lives studying the Bible and who in particular specialize in the letter to the Hebrews. And some of them, not all of them, but some of them write that they feel that Hebrews was a, a sermon based on Psalm 110, where the author is quoting from other places, but mainly he never loses his focus. He's preaching a sermon on Psalm 110. And it's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but it's not far from the truth. To this point in the letter, Psalm 110 has been mentioned explicitly or quoted seven times. And I want to begin this morning by just Walking you through that so that you can feel the flow of what the author is doing and you can see the glory of where he brings us today. So turn back to chapter 1, verse 3. He starts from the third verse of his sermon, his letter. This is an allusion, it's not a quote, but it's very clearly got Psalm 110 in mind. Chapter 1, verse 3, right in the middle. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand of God. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. And to which of the angels has he, the Father, ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's a quote, not an illusion, but a quote. Now go to chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. This is the third time Psalm 110 shows up, even though its shadow has been there from chapter one all the way to chapter five. Chapter five, verse five. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, namely Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then look down at verses nine and 10 in chapter five. And being made perfect, he, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Why? Because he was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110. Look now at chapter 6, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, an anchor that cannot be moved by any storm, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where what? What? where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's the fifth quote of Psalm 110. And now chapter 7, verse 14. I'm going to read a few verses for context here. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in this connection, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And this becomes even more evident when another priest arises. How? In the order of Melchizedek who became a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him by the Father. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's a quote, again, from Psalm 110. Finally, look in 720. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests, that is, the priests of Israel, They were made such without an oath. They were just appointed. They didn't have to take an oath and God did not give them an oath. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Again, quoting from the Psalm, you are a priest forever. That's the seventh time, and now we come to chapter 10, verses 11 through 18, and the author, he's had this in his mind from chapter 7 all the way through 8 through 9 through the beginning of 10, and now here at the end of the priestly section, he's going to wrap it up by bringing our minds back to Psalm 110. Please don't miss the point. It's hugely important, not just for understanding the letter, but for understanding the reality, daily reality of what God has done in Christ, beloved. This is no fairy tale, and it's not a movie this is real Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God and it is very glorious very glorious so in verses 11 through 18 there are three statements that are made about three different persons and and they're tied together so let's start the first statement is in verse 11 look there with me the author writes and every priest does what he stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So the first statement is that every priest stands daily. Remember that. And the Greek word here for stand, it just means stand, it's a very simple word, but the way that it's written means that the priests stand, and they 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 stand forever. They will never do anything else but stand, at least in regard to their ministry as priests. Now, of course, they went home and they slept and all that stuff. We're not talking about that. They weren't forced to stand forever. But the point is, in their ministry as high priests, all they did was stand. They could never sit. Why? Because their work was never done. They had to keep offering sacrifices for sin, and no matter how many sacrifices they offered back behind them, the sins are piling up faster and faster, As more people are born and more people are living and more people are sinning 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, the sins are just piling up. The priests are paying the bills, but the bills keep coming back and they keep getting bigger and they can't keep up. And so the priest can't sit down. He has to stand and stand and stand and stand year after year after year after year, century after century, for 1,400 years, beloved never able to sit down because the work was never done. It was just flat out never done. As we saw some weeks ago, all of that blood that was shed did have a sort of superficial and ceremonial effect as God in his grace used those sacrifices to do things in the life of his people. But at the end of the day, they couldn't solve the problem because as it says here, they could not take the sin away It was like putting a Band-Aid on cancer. It was like putting a soothing oil on a a brain tumor. It might make you feel good, but it's not healing the disease. The disease is still there, and so they stand and sacrifice and stand and sacrifice year upon year upon year upon year. Last night, around 5 or 6 o'clock, I got to wondering, like how many bulls, goats, etc. were sacrificed over the years. We know that this system lasted for right around 1,400 years. So how many are we talking about? And I I just saw quickly there's no way to calculate the number because I don't know, for instance, how many priests there were serving at any particular time over 1,400 years. And of those priests, I don't know how many of them offered sacrifices every day and I don't know how many they offered every day. So I just decided to make it simple. All right. Let's imagine that there's one priest who lives for 1,400 years, and every single day he offers one sacrifice for sins. All right? This equation was simple. Jason, you're a math guy, very simple equation. One times 365 times 1,400. Do the math. It turns out to mean that that one priest offering one sacrifice for 1,400 years would offer 511,000 sacrifices in 1,400 years, half a million sacrifices by one priest, one a day. Now, there were a lot more priests than that. By the time we get to Jesus' day, there's over 20,000 priests serving in Israel, 20,000. I don't know how many of them offered sacrifices, but all I can say is, in a general way, it would not be an exaggeration, not even close to say that there were millions of bulls, goats, and other animals sacrificed over the 1,400 years from Moses to Jesus, millions of them. This is not a fantasy. This is not a made-up fairy tale. This is real, in a real place, in a real time in Jerusalem, first in the tent and then in the first temple and then in the second temple. Millions, millions of bulls, goats, other animals were sacrificed. And you know what it did to take away sin? Nothing, zip, zero, nada, did not touch the root of the disease at all. All of this ceremony, all of this rite, all of this ritual was ordained by God to be a sign and a symbol of a greater sacrifice to come. But all of that blood could not actually take away sin. And so the priest could never sit down, beloved. He could never sit down. As long as there was sin in the world, the priest had to stand and stand and stand. Now let's look at the second statement, verses 12 through 14, contrasting that pri- those priests with the one great priest. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time, forever, for eternity, those who are being sanctified. So, statement one, the priests are standing. Statement two, Christ is sitting. And the idea is he's sitting and sitting and sitting and sitting and sitting. And he will sit forever because his work is done. There's one place in the Bible... I believe it's Acts chapter 7 where Stephen looks into heaven and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. But that was for a moment. That was for a circumstance everywhere else in the Bible, in the New Testament. It's always picturing Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. And I don't know if that means that he's literally sitting there. I think the idea is that he is rested in the Father because his work is finished and he will rest forever there is a sense, even when he returns again and comes back with the angels and the clouds of heaven so that every eye sees him at his return, there will be a sense in which Jesus will still be seated at the right hand of the throne of God because his work will still be done and done forever. Now, I don't mean to be grotesque, but I really I wanted to f- feel this graphically yesterday. I asked God, give me a picture, give me a metaphor of, of this of the contrast between all the blood that was shed over here and the blood that was shed by Christ. And I just, I just thought of it this way. You could literally, and I mean literally, with the volume of blood that was shed over those 1,400 years, millions of animals, if you collected all the blood, it would fill up multiple water towers, filled with blood brimming over the top. Blood, blood, blood. Can't take away sin. Relatively speaking, Jesus sheds a drop of blood. And with that single offering, a drop of blood, it provides for the eternal and absolute forgiveness of everyone who will believe in him from the moment they believe to forever. And for anyone in any nation at any time who believes in Christ, their sin will be wiped away. All of that blood did nothing. The small, volume-wise at least, The small blood of Christ did everything. It accomplished it all. The blood of Christ actually penetrates to the heart. The blood of Christ actually heals the disease. The blood of Christ actually reverses the curse that disobedience brought upon the world. The blood of Christ trumps the disobedience of Adam and Eve and all of the horrors that it has brought. And so, having made the awesome sacrifice, beloved, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father because his work as high priest was finished. There's so much in those words on the cross when he said, it is finished. There's so much there. And so he sat down. And I thought about this yesterday. That doesn't mean that he's relieved from his duty as a high priest. That means that he is installed forever as high priest. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices now. So what does he do? Hebrews tells us. He prays for us. Moment by moment hour by hour, day by day, week by week, year by year. He's praying and praying and interceding for us as he's there rejoicing with the Father in what he has done, established as the great high priest. And there will never be a shift in administration. He will never be replaced. He will never be removed. He is our priest forever, seated at the right hand of God. That's one reason why he's sitting down, because his work is done And there's another reason why Jesus is sitting down and that's because he is taking his rest in the very presence of God. So think about it this way. The other priests, they did their work at the temple and they might have had their quarters in the temple or whatever, you know, like at the Vatican, how some of the priests and the Pope actually live on the campus there. It's possible that some of the priests in those old days lived on the campus, but many of them went home. So they do their work in the temple, they go home. Jesus did not do that. Jesus offered his sacrifice in the true temple of God and he stayed there because God is his home. Jesus takes his rest in the presence of God because the Father is his rest. He's not looking for his rest outside of God. God the Father is the rest that the Son requires. And so he sits in the presence of his Father in perfect fellowship with the Father forever and ever and ever. We'll come back to that in a moment. But for now, look in verse 13 and you'll see that the author brings Psalm 110 more back into our focus. Because it's just to me an astonishing idea here. All right, get the picture in your mind. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and what's the Father doing? The Father is working on behalf of the Son. So let me put it to you this way. The Son is resting in the Father. The Father is working for the Son. And what the Father is doing is seeking to make the enemies of the Son absolutely submitted to Him so that He will be installed as the King of kings over heaven and earth forever and ever. This is the point of Psalm 110. Jesus is the high priest and the eternal king. As priest, Jesus is seated because His work is done. As king, Jesus is seated because the Father is working on His behalf. Christ is is resting in the father the father is working for the son please remember that that's a very big and important idea look back at chapter 2 verse 8 chapter 2 verse 8 he had just quoted from psalm 8 and then he says in the middle of verse 8 now in putting everything in subjection to him that is to jesus the father left nothing outside of his control and now at the middle At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Jesus. And I told you then, and I still believe now, that what that means is if you go out there in the world today, you are going to see people, families, organizations, cities, states, and entire nations living in rebellion against God, right? There are even people who are doing that in the name of God, claiming the blessing of God as they're calling good evil and calling evil good. Just this very week, I was listening to NPR and I listened to this so-called bishop there on the radio celebrating the vote that happened in Minnesota and celebrating the decisions of the Supreme Court this last week and putting the blessing of God upon it. Listen, I have sin too and my sin is just as bad as any homosexual, but I will not call evil good and good evil. God has said homosexuality is an abomination, just like heterosexual things are abominations when they're outside of God's will. We can't call it good. And here's a guy claiming to be a bishop, claiming to speak for Jesus, who is actually raging against God. Not everybody in this world at this moment is submitted. At at present, we do not yet see everything in submission to him. But then look at at the rest of the verse, verse 9. But we do see this. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everybody. Beloved, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father while the Father is putting his enemies under his feet because on the cross, Jesus dealt the fatal death blow to his enemies. As high priest, he provided for sin. As king, he absolutely defeated his enemies on the cross. Let me put it to you graphically. When Christ died and was raised again, he castrated Satan. He robbed Satan of his power. In that moment, Jesus broke the chains off of those he had already determined in his heart to free. In that moment, Jesus set captives free. In that moment, he reversed the curse. He healed the disease. And now he sits down, and on the basis of the most powerful blood of Christ, the Father works for the Son until all of his enemies are actually put underneath his feet. The nations, beloved, They rage against God, but as Psalm 2 tells us, as they rage against him, the Lord looks back at them, and he laughs at the nations, and I think there are two reasons why he's laughing. At one level, he's laughing because it's funny. It's like a general of a very powerful army. Just imagine him walking down the street, and some smart-mouthed five-year-old comes up with all seriousness and threatens the general and tells him he's going to take his army down. I got these little G.I. Joe guys, and I'm taking you down, pal. And the general just laughs. He's like, that's funny. I mean, that's funny. You're going to take us down. Not going to happen. So there's a sense in which I think God laughs because it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But there's another sense, another reason why God is laughing that is glorious. Glorious. While the nations are raging against God, The father laughs with this kind of laughter that's like complicated. It's like the laughter of Abraham and Sarah when they were laughing about Isaac. There's a complicated laughter, lots of emotions in it. One reason the father is laughing is because he knows that even while the nations are raging against him, he is plotting for them. He is getting ready to send his only son, the one that they are scoffing. To, to, send, to give his life on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins so that the ragers can be turned into praisers. I love football, so I see it as a contest. On the other side, the enemy is called the, razor, the ragers. They're raging at God, raging at him, raging at him, sometimes even in his own name. They're called the ragers and he is plotting for their good to turn ragers into praisers. He shed the blood of his son so that they could take off their uniform and come to the other side and see the glory of God and bow before him forever, be melted like wax at the grace of God and come into submission to his will. The father laughs because he's plotting for their good, beloved. He's plotting for their good indeed. As Romans says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, right? Right? While we're still ragers, while we're stabbing God in the back, he sends his only son to die for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by the wrath of God, from the wrath of God, which is soon to come and is sure to come. Beautiful and glorious. Now, let's talk about verse 14 for a minute. Please look there. It's a very important verse. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being saved. So there are two sides to this verse, very important. On the one side, there is the permanent reality of perfection. That's where it says, he has perfected. And again, like the way this is written in Greek, it means he has done it and it's going to be done forever. He has perfected. That's the permanent side. And then on the other side, there is the ongoing process of becoming holy of being sanctified, or of being perfected. That's at the the last part of the verse. So he has perfected those who are being saved. He has perfected those who are being perfected. This is why I called the message today, the reality and process of perfection. He has perfected, and we are being perfected. So I I wanna talk about this for a little bit, because I wanna make sure we get this in our hearts, not just in our heads. Yesterday I was telling the Lord, I said, Lord, I... I think I understand the word a little bit, but I feel about as far from perfect as you could feel at times, you know? I was just telling Kimmy last night, we had a little time together out on our deck last night just hanging out and sharing in the Lord and and, and all that together And and I told her I had spent a number of hours with the Lord meditating on some things and I just felt so blessed by him and I come out of that, this is sometime on Friday, I think, I come out of that and I get into this interaction with a person and just to bottom line it for you, I was just really rude, just really rude. And I need to apologize to that person. And it's just like, I don't understand. How could I just have spent 10 straight hours with Jesus and be like that? I don't get it. I don't feel perfect, Lord. I feel a million miles away from it. So help me understand. And I think you did help me understand. I don't think that being perfect means we never make mistakes. I think it means that by the power of the sacrifice of Christ, every flaw in us and blemish in us that has made us unacceptable to God has been removed in God's sight. It's just gone. We have been made fit to be in the presence of God by the power of Christ so that one day we're actually gonna see him face to face and the angels don't even do that. The angels hide their faces from God. And God has been so gracious to us in Christ that we're gonna get to behold his glory through Jesus Christ. It isn't about what I do and how I feel. It's about what Christ has done. That's what perfection is. It's the covering of Christ over the believing soul. What perfection means is that I am at peace with God and I can be in fellowship with him. It means that I have been made holy as he is holy so that there's a part of me that really does delight in him now and really does want what he wants. I am not a slave to my sin anymore. I still sin but I'm not a slave to it anymore. I am free in Christ. I am united with Christ and in this sense I'm I'm perfect in that sense. Christ has covered me. The shame is gone. The guilt is gone. My conscience is free before God. And I told you a few weeks ago sometimes we're going to feel guilt. I'm not saying that. But when we feel guilt, we will always know that the sacrifice of Christ is greater than our sins, and so our consciences can be free. We are free. To be perfect means we are free to be in fellowship with God. That's what it means. I can have an authentic relationship with my creator. There's there's nothing greater than that. So now let's talk about the ongoing side. How do we understand this? So he has perfected those who are being perfected. He has done it and so now he's doing it. He has made us, he has removed our sin and now he's removing our sin. Like how do we make sense of this? Or one way to get into the issue is just to ask the question, why does Jesus do it this way? Have you ever asked him that? Or have you just ever struggled with your sin and just wished he would just speak the word and take all of your sin away? Like, can you just take this away from me so I can stop? Please, I know you could do it. Would you please just take it? And he won't at times. He won't. So why? Well, a lot of answers to that question, but I want to just put one thing on the table that might be the key to the rest of the answers and in the coming weeks, we're gonna press into this and think about this a lot. But I asked the Lord about this yesterday and this is what he showed me. The, probably the main reason that Jesus uses a process by which to make us holy is because he wants us to enter into the joy of obedience on this earth that he knew. And you can't enter that joy if you don't have the opportunity to disobey. He wants to teach you the joy of overcoming so that you want the will of God so bad you would even take up a cross and die to do the will of God. There's joy there, beloved. There's satisfaction there. Christ did not just do what His Father asked Him to do. He did it from the heart because there's superior joy in the will of God even when it calls us to suffer. And Christ wants us to wants to teach us this way. He wants to bring us into this joy. There's not another way to do it. It can't happen in heaven. It can't happen in heaven. The angels will never know the joy of overcoming by the blood of the Lamb. They will never know the joy of walking away from the things that Christ has already taken away on the cross. They will not know the joy. Christ wants that joy for us. And so yeah, it's hard and we gotta suffer a little bit, but there's a prize at the end of this race that's beyond what we can imagine. So be patient with Jesus and know he has you in a process for a reason. And the reason is his glory and your joy like exploded beyond what you can imagine. And I know that sounds awfully preacherly and exaggerated, but it's not. It's a joy that will ever increase. Ever increase, ever increase, fought hard through daily obedience as we learn to love the will of God more than the comforts of this world, period and end of story. Yesterday, as I prayed about all this, I just got a heart to encourage you to memorize Hebrews 10:14. Would you please do that? Memorize it. 1014, simple verse. If you're good at memorizing, you could literally do this in three or four minutes. If you struggle with memorizing, 15, 20 minutes, you can memorize this verse. And maybe if you will, the Lord will give you great and deep insight into the things that I have been sharing. So please, please do that. One more statement, verses 15 through 18. The priests stand daily. Second, Jesus sits eternally. Third, now we see the Holy Spirit testifies to the truth of what God has done in Christ. So look at verse 15. And now the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins no more. And will I remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Have you been going through this journey with us those words should sound familiar to you because the author quoted these verses in more context in chapter eight. It's from Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 through 34. And what he's trying to do in chapter eight is enter the legal language of the new covenant into this discussion of Jesus as high priest. And I've told you before, but let me remind you again because the author wants us to bring this to mind. The first covenant was built on the words, we will do it, three times to. To Moses and to the Lord, the people said, all that the Lord has commanded us, we will do. We will do it, we will do it. Well, you know how that worked out. We will do it turned into ain't gonna happen. And it never did happen. They did not do it. They could not do it. So, God, in His amazing mercy and grace, prophesies through Jeremiah 600 years before Jesus. And now, even now, the Holy Spirit is still speaking the words. And He declares the new covenant that's basically summarized by the words I will do it, declares the Lord. The new covenant is about me and what I will do for you. I will put my laws into your mind so that you understand them and you know what it means to do the will of God. It is not complicated and I will write it inside of you on your very mind and I will put it on your heart so that you will have passion to do the things that you know to do. You will know the will of God. You will want to do the will of God. You will be like Jesus in this way, and you will have a great joy. And now here's here's the deal. You know you're still gonna sin. You know it's gonna happen. So I am adding this little phrase. I want you to hear this. I want you to feel the power of this. I want you to know the freedom that's yours by the single sacrifice of Christ. I am not going to remember your sins, all right? It's over. Your sins are gone. The chains have dropped off. You are free. I am God and I cannot literally forget anything. My knowledge is exhausted, but I will treat you as though your sins never happen. In Christ, your sins are gone. So you are free now to come and learn the joy of obedience. Even the Holy Spirit is testifying to this. The author is not making it up. The Holy Spirit is speaking and now I believe, beloved, that the reason the author wrote verses 15 through 18 is because fundamentally in his heart he is a pastor. Remember that originally Hebrews was a sermon that was preached. Someday in some church a guy got up in a place just like I'm doing right now and preached this thing that we call the letter to the Hebrews as a sermon and it was powerful and it got spread from one church to the next, to the next, to the next and 2,000 years later here we are, talking about it now. This is a powerful word of God. And I believe that at this point of his argument, he becomes the pastor rather than just the scholar because he knows something. And for the most part, we understand the logic of the gospel. We understand that Christ has come and by a single sacrifice freed us from sin. And now he's making us perfect day by day. But in practical life, when we walk out that door and we face our own brokenness and our own failures, it's just sometimes hard to believe. Sometimes it's hard to understand, if you're so powerful, why am I still so screwed up after walking with you for 26 years? What's wrong here? This guy's a pastor, beloved, and he knows it. He knows this feeling as a sinner and as a pastor, and so he's telling them, listen, people, God is speaking to you. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you. He is going to do this work inside of you. This new covenant is an I will do, it declares the Lord covenant. And for those times when you fail over and over again, he's gonna forgive you, he's gonna wipe it away. One way you can tell when the Holy Spirit is dealing with you about your sin is his disposition because he, the, the devil will come and say, you sinned, you're a hypocrite, you stink, you're a loser, all that kind of stuff. The Holy Spirit comes and says, you sinned, this isn't good and I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. Christ has already taken this away. I am on your side, so get up, brush yourself off, and let's get moving. I am going to help you. I will do this for you. I am on your side, and I am on your side forever and ever and ever and ever. By faith in Christ, you have nothing left to do, so rest in me, and I will do it for you. That's the word of the Lord to us today, beloved. Christ is seated as our priest. He's seated as our high king. And the Father is working on his behalf. The Son is resting in the Father. We rest in the Son by faith in Christ. We have nothing left to do. So rest in him. He will do it for you. This is the pinnacle of the priestly section, beloved. Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow, and now he will teach us to walk away from the things that he has taken away. He will do it. By faith in Christ, we've nothing left to do. So let's rest in him, and he will do it for you. Let's pray. Jesus, the words have been spoken now. The word has been preached. And I pray that by the Holy Spirit, your power would come and work in our lives. I pray that you would teach us these things earnestly now. I pray that you would help us to taste the glory of what you have spoken now. And I pray that our lives would actually be affected by what we have heard today. Christ, exalt yourself, not just in this room, but in our lives. I trust you, Father, not only for this moment, but I trust you for what you'll do. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.